we often want to move forward and sort of like move past without reconciling and repairing what, what harm has been created. Hi there, I am Abigail Croft, co-host of the Bridge Breakthrough podcast alongside my colleague and great friend, Scott Taylor. Every episode, we sit down and have a chat with inspirational change leaders from around the world. We hope our podcast provides insights, inspiration, and ideas that can support you to create change for yourself, your organization, and the world that we all share. In this episode, I sit down with Ryan Honeyman. Ryan is a father of two kids, a three-year-old and a five-year-old. He's been known to attend 10-day silent meditation retreats, cook a surprisingly good dish of sweet potato tacos, and try to dismantle systemic white supremacy. He's also a partner, worker-owner at Lyft Economy, and co-author of the B Corp Handbook, How to Use Business as a Force for Good. As a self-proclaimed B Corp nerd, he's helped over 30 companies like Patagonia, Allbirds, Ben & Jerry's, King Arthur Flower, Tanka Bar, and Red Bay Coffee become certified B Corporations and maximize the value of their B Corp certification. Ryan's written numerous articles for publications such as the Stanford Social Innovation Review, Fast Company, Entrepreneur, Huffington Post, Putney Reader, and Triple Pundit. He's also been a featured speaker at SOCAP, Bioneers, Summit LA, the B Corp Champions Retreat, the Sustainable Enterprise Conference, the Hong Kong Social Enterprise Summit, the Stanford D School, the Wharton School of Business, the UC Berkeley Haas School of Business, and many others. I'm really excited to welcome Ryan to the podcast, and we hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for joining us on the show today. Really excited to have you here. Thanks so much, Scott. Yeah. Um, for those of our listeners that, that don't know um, who you are, I mean, I've just done an intro for you. Um, I, I would love it uh, if you could share um, kind of who you are, where you are, uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll go from there. Great. Yeah. So, you know, Ryan Honeyman, I live in um, the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, yeah, I guess I should mention that it's, I live on unceded Miwok Indian land. Um, Miwok is a Native American tribe. Uh, so it's north of San Francisco in Marin County area. Uh, and depending on where your listeners are, they probably know about the history of uh, stolen land in the U.S. So I wanted to acknowledge the ancestors that have been here before me. Hmm. Um, yeah, and so what I, uh, what I do is I, I'm a um, consultant for a worker-owned co-op called Lyft Economy. Um, and what Lyft Economy does is, um, well, it's, a lot of different things, which we'll probably get into, but the, the sort of idea of the co-op is to, is to create, model, and share an inclusive and locally self-reliant economy that works for the benefit of all life. And so hmm. uh, we're looking at how do we change what we're doing in our economic system to benefit all of life and not just, um, you know, our current economic system is not working. So how do we fix it? Amazing. Yeah. I think we're, we're recognizing that that's needed more and more. 
um, yeah. every, every year that goes by for sure. Um, fantastic. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're a more complex human than that. Um, I would love to hear again, before we, we jump into the topic of change. Um, yeah. What are, the, <clears throat> what are three things about you that are, that are core to, to who you are and how you operate in this world? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think one is, um, you know, we sort of discussed it before the recording, but one thing I've been looking into a lot is identity, uh, especially as, you know, your folks can't see me who's listening to this, but I'm a white male who's, you know, heterosexual, uh, cisgendered, um, uh, you know, all of these sort of, uh, um, sort of characteristics of, uh, a privileged white guy. Mm. Um, and for many years, I thought that, um, the best role that I could play as a white guy was to stay out of the conversation about, you know, racial justice or gender inequality, or, you know, to sort of make space for others. Cause often I felt white guys like me were taking up too much space. Um, but uh, as of late, the last few years, there's been this inquiry that I've been holding of, you know, standing on the sidelines and being quiet is actually not, you know, folks of color said that's not helpful for us. Um, we need you engaged. And so I've been looking into this, what is the appropriate role of a, of a white guy in these conversations about you know, racism, sexism, um, you know, LGBT rights, et cetera. So that's a big part. And, you know, we could probably circle back to that. I imagine in this, in this conversation, um, that's one, one thing, uh, another core thing folks should know is, um, I may self describe B Corp nerd. So, (laughs) you know, the B Corp movement, um, you know, using the, the ideas, how do we, um, use the power of business as a force for good. So I uh, co-authored the, the B Corp handbook um, with um, co-author Dr. Tiffany Jana, uh, who might be another good, might be good guest for this podcast. So mm-hmm. put that in your radar. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. And, uh, you know, for folks who don't know, B Corps are a global community of around 30 33 or 3,400 B Corps, you know, Hong Kong, China, um, all throughout Asia, um, South America, North America, Europe, that's, um, and, and Africa. So pretty much every continent except uh, Antarctica. Yeah. Um, but companies like Patagonia and Ben and & Jerry's and um, Method, Allbirds. Um, so there's a lot of famous certified B Corps. So that's a, a community I'm involved with and we could probably go into that more as well. Um, third thing, I, um, I guess what's been up for me is I'm a dad as well. I have two kids, a two and a half year old boy named Parker and a five year old named Zadie. And so constantly um, being challenged by, by kids running around and being loud and, uh, making noise, but also just a lot of love and, uh, compassion and joy and like seeing them grow up and, um, you know, trying to connect some of the work I'm doing around whiteness and, uh, you know, business for good with that, you know, 
this sort of generation. I don't even know what generation they're called anymore. Yeah. Cause I think millennials was us <laughs> and then before. I don't, I don't know what's after that. Like, like Gen Z and then like, that's the end of the alphabet. Maybe it's generation alpha or something. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's going back. Yeah. Fascinating. No, I mean, I think, um, yeah, it's, it's really interesting to hear what's, what resonates of, of again, how you identify, um, from your gender. And that was a really interesting part of reading the, the second edition of the, the B Corp handbook. Um, um, and as I, I recognize myself as very much similar, similar identity as you, um, and that whole cisgender thing, um, yeah, is so brand new and really not uh, part of the discussion out in Asia, but I know very much so part of the, the business dialogue and just the general dialogue in, in North America. Um, so I, I would love to get jump into those. Um, I got a couple more questions just to get to our listeners to know sure. you a bit more before we do that. Um, I'm always a fan of asking this question because I think it's really um, insightful. I think from what I've learned, all, all, all great leaders, change makers, you know, people on a mission have uh, some form of morning routine to get them focused for the change that they want to make in the world and keep them on, on mission, if you will. What do you do when you get up to set yourself up for success uh, for the day? Is there anything part of your morning routine that uh, would be helpful for the listeners? Yeah, I was gonna, I'll say um, any change maker that doesn't have young children has a great morning routine. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So my, my morning routine has been a bit hijacked. Um, I, honestly, actually, I do. This is a bit more uh, spotty than I would like, but um, I try to get up before the kids and meditate, um, usually in bed, just sort of sitting up. Um, and uh, if I can get my morning meditation in, you know, I, tr I try to do an hour, but it's, a, you know, sometimes it's 20 minutes or a half yeah. hour. But um, Getting that meditation in really sets me up in the very early morning. Um, and then I've realized after going to, after the kids go to school, I've started to have a practice of doing a bit of journaling, you know, in like more of a actual pen and paper mm. just to sort of get out any thoughts uh, or, or sort of things I'm sitting with before immediately starting to do emails or, you know, because if, if I don't do the journaling or, you know, sometimes it just leads into getting lost in the email black hole. So I try to do a little bit of journaling before I do touch the computer. Fantastic. I mean, at, at Bridge, we, we use a model um, kind of of attention of all the work that we do around me, us, and it, and how important it is to focus on the, on the me um, and often how much that ne gets neglected before we jump into the emails and all that. So yeah, it's great to hear that yeah. you, you have that practice. Um, what, uh, what are you listening to these days? What's inspiring you? Are you uh, music wise, podcast wise? Is there anything um, that's kind of really stimulating? Um, it's always keen to, to share kind of input of other people. Any books that have really jumped out for you? Yeah, that's another good question. I was just trying to pull up my, um, it's in my <laughs> podcast feed here. Yeah. Well, quick plug, you know, for Next Economy Now, we have our own podcast. Absolutely. <laughs> that's always a good one. Absolutely. And um, before you move on, what, for the listeners, yeah. what, is, uh, what is the Next Economy podcast and, and what's Yeah. 
Yeah, so we started this in 2015 just with sharing. The idea was just recording our own business partners talking to each other about things like, you know, why would a company want to be a worker-owned cooperative? And what are the upsides and downsides? And why would, uh, you know, we have something called value, values-based invoicing where we invoice a client with an amount, but we allow them to adjust the invoice to the value they feel they received. So a client could theoretically lower the invoice or raise it. Um, right. And it's a practice that we've learned kind of from some other practitioners in like the gift economy. So we were having conversations of that. And then that sort of led into, well, if we're going to talk to each other, we should at least reach out to the people that we're actually also interested in speaking yeah. with. Yeah. Um, so we have done like Rose Marcario, the CEO of Patagonia, um, you know, folks like actually like Tom Steyer and Deval Patrick are both presidential candidates. Uh, before they were presidential candidates, we had them on the podcast. Um, probably they're probably too hard to get now. Um, and like Daniel Goldman, Daniel Goldman's a, a author of emotional intelligence. So we have some Buddhist practitioners, but it's basically people were really interested in learning from, and it's, it's a good excuse to, to talk to them in a, in a format that they otherwise would probably not talk to me right. <laughs> if it wasn't a podcast interview. So Brilliant. yeah, that's, that's um, something I'm listening to. I do listen to our own, so I guess it's a good sign. Um, there's also, let's see, there's also some other books, um, around, you know, racial justice. There's a, a book, how to be an anti-racist by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, which is, um, really great book on just, you know, showing up for racial justice and like, what does it mean? Uh, it's, it's not necessarily only for for white folks, um, but you know, it's for everyone just how to be anti-racist and has a great premise around, there's no such thing as, as being not racist. There's only racist and anti-racist. So it, it sort of forces those of us um, like me who have been more comfortable in saying, you know, I'm, well, I'm not racist, so I don't have to, to mm. do anything. That's just other people. Um, Ibram Kendi kind of challenges folks to say, no, you, you you're either, participating in the system which is racist or you're actively anti-racist so there's sort of an action that's required to be anti-racist that's that's sort of the um one of the the sort of like queries i've been holding and i, I guess for folks who are identified as white and are sort of really interested uh there's the books white fragility by robin d'angelo um and another is a uh, white like me by um tim wise hmm. so it's sort of you know, I think that's been inspiring for me is who are white people that are leading this fight and, a, um, and so learning from them and, you know, what's uh, appropriate and sort of not appropriate has been really powerful. Right. I mean, I guess that's a perfect segue into um, some of the topics I was, I was keen to, to chat with you about. Um, I mean, for, for our listeners, I first met Ryan, um, through the B Corp handbook, uh, I purchased it. I've been a big follower of the of the movement here in in Asia. Um, and then you came out to Hong Kong, and we were able to to hang out. Um, and I must say, when the second uh, edition came out recently, and reading through the the preface uh, that you and and Dr. Jana wrote, I was I was really not 
taken aback, but I was really surprised at um, the angle that you chose to to take with it. And it, it absolutely makes sense. And I'm, I'm, I'd love to talk about the B Corp movement with you, creating change in the world, and maybe the segue into that um, with the the whole DEI, the white supremacy in business. Mm-hmm. How did um, I guess how how did you discover that and where why is it so important um, for us to create positive change uh, not only in the world but and especially in the business world yeah yeah so the you know, for listeners, the first edition of the B Corp handbook I wrote in twenty fourteen you know so this is before I had any kids um, and you know, I think, you know, Obama was president in the U.S. And so uh, in many ways, you know, there was sort of this um, very progressive um, president, black man, who's our, who's our, you know, our leader. And, and so there was maybe less of a sort of a self inquiry as to mm-hmm. how am I participating in this system? Uh, you know, so over the, from 2014, um, I think that was the same year Trayvon Martin was shot uh, and Eric Garner died and then Philando Castile got shot in like Minnesota and Freddie Gray got killed in Baltimore. And so there was also, so I had kids, my first daughter was born and my my only daughter was born in 2014. Mm -hmm. Um, My son was born in 2017, but uh, there was sort of, this upswelling of video and you know black lives matter was starting um there was you know all these yeah shootings of unarmed black men and women there was uh you know the code access pipeline protests were happening right. and me too movement and then donald trump gets elected uh and it was like what the hell is going on <laughs> you know like why is donald trump our president and there's all these videos that, you know, just really ridiculous, uh, horrible police shootings and me too. And suddenly I have kids. So I f- I'm feeling like more sort of like, wow, this is the world I'm bringing them up into. And so it just came to a point where I couldn't ignore, uh, you know, I think the big, one of the big takeaways of Trump getting elected is, is it, you know, it wasn't just this, you know, super racist group of people, you know, who voted for him, it was also sort of the average white person. And, and I think a lot of progressive, quote unquote, white people were very blindsided. Um, And so it was just a a big awakening, uh, you know, over a couple of years, and then starting to reach out to folks, I started to reach out and said, you know, how do I I'm clearly like missing something and just being just thinking I'm progressive and, and not racist and, and doing, you know, work for, you know, social impact work. It suddenly felt not enough. Like there needed to be an, a, another couple of layers deeper of inquiry and, and um, exploration. Um, and so the second edition of the B Corp book, uh, my publisher had asked, this, so this is around the book come out came out in 2019 in April, so a little less than a year ago, and you know a couple of years ago is when you start. So right. you know maybe 2017 or 2018 is when you start working on the draft. 
And so I was like, I cannot write another B Corp book that does not take into account um, some of the stuff that's going on in the world. Like it would just felt inauthentic to say like, just yeah, B Corps are solving everything and like are the best thing ever, hmm. but just be completely disconnected from the reality of uh, what it felt like the world was going through. And honestly, you know, there's a bit of privilege even in that because I think, you know, for many folks of color and women and others, they've been experiencing this for a much longer time. And so, um, you know, I, I also realized that it's not maybe even necessarily that things are like objectively worse now. It's just that I think there's more awareness of right. them. Uh, and so, yeah, that led to really looking at, um, okay, this book has to be, has to have diversity, equity, inclusion as part of it, because it, it became clear to me that you, you really can't run a, a business that's designed for say the, the future or the next economy that is sort of has some, has is blind to uh, this, this sort of ways that capitalism itself is based upon, you know, enslavement and, you know, genocide of native Americans and how wealth was accumulated and, Mm. Um, you know, like capitalism and like in Dr. Kendi's book, he calls it racial capitalism because race uh, and capitalism are very intertwined. And so if we are a movement of companies who are wanting to use the power of business as a force for good, and we're not addressing right. race, which is intertwined with capitalism, how could we ever really mm. like, say that we're really solving problems? Yeah, they're so they're so intrinsically linked. I mean, for the listeners, yeah. to just go back a bit. Um, you talked about DEI. I think um, again, that was a big illuminating thing. I highlighted it. I was like, "What is? We're doing all this work of DNI here in in Asia, and here we are being like, we're we're behind the times." And 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 you break it down and and explain the difference between equity and equality in the industry. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting too. For our listeners, would you be able to, to explain yeah. that? Yeah, so there's DEI, so diversity, equity, and inclusion. So diversity is just there's differences between people. You know, there's small people or tall people or, mm. you know, somebody went to this school, somebody went to that school, you know. Um, and so inclusion would be... Um, it's not just that there's diversity, uh, but people are actually actively being included. So like in a company, it's like, it's great if there's folks of color in addition to white folks, but if there's no inclusion of the folks of color, it's not really gonna do much. And then equity is sort of the next layer, which is it's not just that they're included, but they're equitable. And so the way that, um, equity difference differs from equality is is um so equality would be um every kid uh you know who applies to college should um get the the same you know whatever their test score is and whatever their gpa is everyone's equal um but uh that doesn't take into account, you know, the fact that a lot of white folks have like the money to pay for like private tutors to do SAT, you know, um, courses to do standardized tests. Um, and, 
that there's, there's just a lot of like the starting point is not the same Mm. for a lot of different folks. And so equity would be, okay, so now um, we, we're taking into account historical discrimination and historical um, uh, sexism or racism. And to say, um, you know, let's provide some of the folks of color with these extra services or resources so that they can be on par with some of the other folks. And so in a company, you know, it might be like um, uh, to have, um, you know, say part-time workers could get healthcare benefits because, um, you know, maybe someone like it's a, a woman of color who doesn't, who can't work full time because she also has to take care of the kid and right. can't afford a, like a babysitter. And so there's, so you're just taking into account a lot of the, the different historical um, aspects of, of oppression into mm-hmm. your business or, or whatever you're doing. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, as you're talking through that, I, you know, I even get this sense of, oh man, like that's such a big, dirty, messy conversation to be having. Um, and, I, and yet so important. And, and you're absolutely right in, in, in setting up the, the B Corp handbook and saying, you know, if we're looking to be a force for good, like you said, that this, these are conversations that that we have to step into and have. Um, what, I mean, I know you offer some suggestions in the book, but again, what, what can people be doing? Um, so if there's more awareness uh, around the world that this is, this is a thing, this exists, white supremacy and business are intrinsically linked, what, what can people do to, to recognize that and, and engage with it um, in a sensitive way that won't kind of push people to the sides or get people scared of the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I should also mention, I do mention white supremacy in the book. Um, and the reason uh, we talked about white supremacy um, and not just racism. So when I say white supremacy, mm-hmm. I'm not saying, I'm not necessarily saying um, KKK members or the Nazis or people right. who have like in, individual bias, um, it's more that there are systems of white supremacy in that uh, that operate behind the scenes um, and that sort of have uh, network effects, like large effects. So, you know, one example would be um, in the way that we fund our public schools in the United States, we fund them by the housing values of the houses around the school, like that's the tax base that goes into the school's budget. And so of course you're gonna have like wealthier white neighborhoods have better schools because that's the tax base and poorer schools are gonna get their money from, you know, the poor poor communities, which are, you know, often inhabited by folks of color. And so that's like a system that's based on white supremacy and racism, but we wouldn't necessarily see it as like overtly racist. Like it's not somebody's out there like you, you know, race, like they're not right. calling people names. Yeah. Um, and so it's also, we talked about white supremacy because it's, it's also super uncomfortable to even say it as a white person and, you know, sure. on, for folks of color, it's definitely, but we also, Dr. Jana and I talked about it and um, you know, there's, there's a lot of good 
articles and and research and sort of exhortations around using it because when you say white supremacy, it's actually more accurate as to what's going on. It's it says like who set up the system and who benefits from the system and who is perpetuating the system. Because if you were to say like say racism or um, you know bias, so say you say bias, bias could mean almost anything. Like um, an Asian man's bias towards a black man, but that that's not taking into account that there's a a larger system operating in which white whiteness is seen as the ideal um, and often is based on like colonialism and like how the English and uh, others like, you know, like settled and colonized Asia. And so there's a lot like, it's not just that there's bias, it's because there's this larger system of Mm. um, white supremacy and colonialism that still exists today. Right. Yeah, it, it, for me that that really lifted. Uh, it's kind of you know when you read books, there's moments where you're like, you have to read pages over and over to be like, what? Yeah, Are they getting this. And yeah, for me that definitely was because it's. Um, yeah, I think it's a blind spot in in a lot of us going into to wanting to create uh, good in the world through through business. Um, yeah, it's just not part of the conversation previously. So um, yeah. Yeah, thank you for for bringing that in. Um, I mean, I'm looking for a way to to because I, I mean I'm a I'm a huge B Corp nerd too, and I wonder if that that link between you know um, yeah that recognition that you said going into the second edition, saying if if we want to be a force for good um, in the world with with capitalism 2.0 or whatever we call it. Uh, that this has this white supremacy conversation has to have a seat at the table. Um, how how does that influence the B Corp movement moving forward? Maybe for our listeners who don't know, what is the B Corp and 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 how does that uh, influence and change it um, in yeah. the next iteration? Yeah. So uh, you know, B Corp was created. Um, by some entrepreneurs and around 2008 with this idea that um, it's hard to tell which companies are actually good businesses and which have just good marketing departments. Hmm. Um, and so the idea that they had after talking to a lot of different other, you know, social entrepreneurs, impact investors, et cetera, was what if we could create a standard um, or a tool where, there was, there was two components. One component was a certification or a way to assess an entire company and not just the product or service. So, you know, there's been, you know, you might have a green certified building, but who knows how the employees are treated that work in that building. Um, and so the B Corp was designed to say, uh, let's look at all aspects of a company, workers, community, environment, governance, customers, and instead of just, you know, one small piece of it. So that, that was like one sort of um, desire that the B Corp founders had was to benchmark a whole company. Uh, and then the second aspect was to give entrepreneurs the legal protection to consider more than just profits when making decisions. Um, and so the, the, basically, that what that means is um, in U.S. corporate law and in corporate law in many places, I'm not actually sure if it's the same in Hong Kong, 
but you might, you might know about this more, Scott, than I do. Do you know if they have the same legal obligation to maximize shareholder value in Hong Kong? Yeah, yeah. so there yeah. hasn't been any legislation. There's work, um, and B-Lab has been established here, and, and there's work going into creating legislation. But on a whole, Hong Kong is a you know bastion of uh, capitalism 1.0, if you will. Um, so yeah. I think that's a big challenge. Um, for for this city and probably for many, um, for me, not not only cities but um, for countries and the legal systems that they have set up. Yeah, yeah. So that legal system, you know, for listeners is uh, in many countries, you know, Hong Kong and the U.S. included, there is a, a either a legal obligation or a um, you know a powerful uh, expectation. Uh, of maximizing shareholder value uh, or, or basically making as much money for your shareholders as possible, which is antithetical and very problematic for social entrepreneurs because by definition, if you're sort of a social entrepreneur, you want to consider more than just profits. Um, and so what the legal protection of the B Corp movement did, uh, where it's been adopted and and in the US and I think a few other countries now, I think Italy has it and maybe Colombia. I have to check the latest list, but um, it basically allows entrepreneurs to take on outside investors and still maintain the, the entrepreneurs still maintain the ability to um, make decisions that benefit workers, community and the environment in addition to shareholders and shareholders no longer have the exclusive right to just you know demands that the company make them as much money as possible and so what the b court movement was designed to do was to give that sort of core operating system of business some flexibility that would allow uh, you know entrepreneurs to basically consider um other stakeholders and it's it's been really powerful and um you know like i said Earlier, uh, there's about 3,300 B Corps all around the world, um, and and yeah, the, the interface with with B Corp and you know the the sort of DEI, white supremacy, racial justice has been really interesting. Um, you know the 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 sort of um, I, I think most people, at least in the B Corp community are fairly open to the idea like many it's a it's a very like progressive um you know still pretty white uh, dominant community in terms of like the u.s but you know I, um you know you have to sort of be a certain it's sort of like wealthy ish not wealthy like rich but sort of like upper middle class or, yeah. or like sort of you know upper class white progressive folks who are do-gooders quote unquote um, and many folks are supportive of the idea of um, diversity, equity, inclusion. And I think it's, it's sort of getting to the point of supportive of the idea versus how do you actually implement it and um, makes, you know, solid change in your company. Because I think, you know, like what you were um, alluding to earlier around how do you do this without, you know, making mistakes or, or you know, upsetting folks is it's really uncomfortable work that is much, much easier left untouched. Mm -hmm. You know, like that's the, the default is to not do anything. I think the problem is that 
not doing anything is causing things like Donald Trump getting elected in the United States and all this populist movements uh, because like bystander syndrome. Right. It's yeah. um, by like not talking about race or difficult topics. Um, we're allowing, um, you know, sort of a, uh, we're allowing this resentment and, you know, these sort of uh, populist anti, you know, anti folks of color sort of like reestablishing like, you know, basically a colonial white dominance in many places. Hmm. Um, we're, we're sort of like allowing that to fester and grow. And so I think I've realized, and I, and I think a lot of others have realized like, Hey, this isn't just, you know, we want to do this uh, because, you know, we think it might be, a good idea. It's like Donald Trump's our president and like the country, the, the country is like in deep, deep crisis. And uh, the, the whole globe is like collapsing under uh, the power of, of climate change and sort of income inequality. Hmm. Uh, and many, you know, last thing I'll say is many folks have said to me, you know, should we focus on climate, you know, because we won't even have an earth to talk, have these conversations around unless we do climate climate change work first. And I had a great, I had a, um, a, this professor from Berkeley, John Powell, John A. Powell on, who does a lot of racial justice and other work, but he said his response to that is, um, the, it's really interesting, but by not addressing race, racial justice or, or equity, um, it, you basically have all these populist politicians being elected who then will not allow any climate, uh, you know, legislation or positive action to move through. So it's fine to say we want to save the planet first, but by not addressing race at the mm -hmm. same time, um, it's, it's actually slowing everything down because you're getting a lot of populist and like sort of anti-environmental folks elected to, to key offices around the world. Yeah, so. no, that's really interesting. Yeah, and I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I must admit, I've, um, I hold that view too. Okay, so, you know, let's, you know, fix, fix the larger environmental system. But that totally makes sense. Is, is we're seeing everything getting bogged down by, by the inaction of, of people. Um, and that made me think of while you were talking about, uh, you know, the B Corp and the in, inaction last year there was that big news of, you know, the business round table coming together saying we want to prioritize uh, stakeholder pri primacy over shareholder primacy. And that's big news uh, all around the world and, and really celebrated by, you know, Larry Fink from BlackRock and Jamie Dimon from JP Morgan coming out and saying this. And then what stops that? I guess if we're talking about change and our relationship to change, when, from an environmental to socioeconomic, what, you know, what do we need to do to, to, to create the change other than positive words and nice PR campaigns? What, what, what do you feel needs to be done from, well, maybe we'll keep it in the business realm, but um, to, to actually kickstart that and turn it into action. Yeah. I heard, um, there's a there's another great book that I read last year or maybe the year before. Um, have you read Winners Take All? No. By Anand. Yeah, it's Winners Take All by Anand 
Giridardas. He's like, he's an Indian American author, former New York Times, uh, former McKinsey, who's he's basically been really powerful messaging in the social impact and philanthropy spaces because he has um, rightly pointed out that, um, you know, a lot of the folks who say they want to change the world are um, often billionaires or, or people that have taken advantage of the system in order to get to where they are and then mm. want to be the leading agents of change. So it's sort of like the fire, uh, you know, the, the fire starter is like also the fireman. Um, and so hmm. uh, the one thing he said that stuck with me is people often ask, like, what can we do to help our you know, system? And he says, the better question is to ask, what have we done? Because most of us don't want to learn to like stop and actually reconcile with what we've done. Um, you know, and for, for, for many of us, it's, um, you know, what is the, what is the legacy of capitalism? Uh, you know, the New York times 1619 project was pretty powerful in that sense. Um, the legacy of capitalism is sort of, um, you know, repair and uh, relationships with with folks in our own communities, and you know, the, the sort of way that, that that capitalism is. You know, capitalism doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's based on these historical pieces. And so, I think for many of us, we want to say, how do we move forward and change everything? But I've been really trying to to slow down and and say, you know, how has capitalism got to this place and how is, you know, how does whiteness and, you know, the ways that we, um, the way that we operate and, and how, you know, whiteness tends to be constantly centered in everything that, that happens, how does that sort of perpetuate these problems? Hmm. You know, because this other woman I was interviewing, um, there's, I posed to her a question around, you know, it seems like the, uh, sort of there's this midwestern white person that's that's like the recalcitrant person who doesn't believe in climate change and you know is there a way that we could get that if we could get that sort of midwestern or rural person who doesn't care about the climate like the fire the rural firefighter or whatever who doesn't care about the climate what's the best way to get them in, involved uh and she had a, a really interesting point around um well caring about the climate is a um, you have to have a sense of a, like a repair or relationship to the environment. Um, and if that relationship is not, so there's sort of like an order of operations. There's a lot of repair that folks need to do with others, maybe in their local community, or, you know, like if, if you're a white firefighter living on stolen indigenous lands and there's no sort of like repair or acknowledgement mm. that that's even happening, it's like we can't really get people even to consider the higher order problem of like climate change because there's um, there's a lot of broken mm. repair and relationships that have not been mended. And so we're actually asking a, like a lot of people to like go past that into a relationship to, to climate change and the environment. Um, and so I've, I've just been really fascinated by, you know, even looking at like my own ancestry and, you know, where did my 
people come from? Because I think, you know, one of the challenges with, with being quote unquote white is that it's, it's almost white is a, uh, like, what does it mean to be white? Usually it, it just means like, well, I don't get pulled over by the police as much, or I, you know, I get, when I walk into a restaurant, like I get treated better than, you know, so it's almost like it's in relation to maybe folks of color and it's sort of a weird, there's not like a joy or vibrantness around whiteness. And I've been doing this course um, online, it's called Before We Were White. And it's sort of like connecting a lot of uh, white folks to this sort of indigenous, right like we, we all have like sort of folk or indigenous traditions in Europe and other places where a lot of white folks came from. And if we can get connected to that, um, you can actually get more rooted and have something to stand in uh, and know sort of more where you came from and what traditions and rites and rituals are part of your tradition that could then lead us to having more powerful and relationship with say, economics or like business or mm. e-corps so i think i think that there's both like a forward looking let's continue to use business as a force for good and you know companies can take the free b impact assessment if they want to you know learn about b corps it's at b impact assessment.net so anyone can take that tool if they want to learn about how to use business as a force for good um, and there's like this sort of sort of reconnecting to roots and like looking backwards and sort of like learning what's been done um, in order to, to, to like complete that loop. Cause I think we often want to move forward and sort of like move past without reconciling and repairing what's, what harm has been created. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And, and something that came up from another interview we had um, with Jane who leads our um, capability and development and the institute of co-founder of one of our institutes she's she was saying like to just yeah slow down to give things a try i guess this is in the forward-facing aspect of that and and let to see where things settle and because it because change is chaotic and messy it's uh there's no one prescribed way all the strategies in the world aren't yeah say you do x and, and y will happen but i love that that aspect of saying and is equally as much stopping to look where we've come from and reflect. And I, 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 I can't really see a lot of that happening, um, you know, not only in organizations, but like you're saying, out, out in the, the greater society, everyone's pushing ahead on how do we change the future instead of uh, looking how can we in, in influence and improve the past. Um, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, to shift a gear a bit, it sounds like you're a very inspired person, you know, by, by knowing you, by reading your work, by, by talking to you today, where do you draw your inspiration to change from? And, and as a father, I, I recognize there's this thing, you know, when you become a parent, my relationship with change has definitely changed. But prior to that, I mean, the work that you've, you've done and kind of you've built, what, what's inspired you to, uh, where do you draw your inspiration from? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great one. Um, I think that I draw a lot of inspiration from people who can hold sort of multiple intersectional viewpoints of, um, you know, I, 
I think there's different phases of my life. So, you know, earlier, a little bit earlier in my business career, um, it was what are the sort of top business books, you know, right. what is like the classics and just sort of like devouring, you know, seven habits of highly effective people or, you know, the four hour work week or, you know, sort of like the productivity and sort of optimize your life, you know, Seth Godin type books um, around like, you know, marketing. And so that, that was a good phase. Um, and I think it's really important even for people who are, you know, not necessarily going to, you know, work at a fortune 500 company, you know, reading stuff like Seth Godin and highly effective people, any, any of these business books that have sort of endured over a long time are, are good to read. Um, obviously read them with a grain of salt because, you know, a lot of them were not necessarily written with a, what do we need to do to actually shift the fundamental <laughs> nature of our planet and like how we relate to each other, right. uh, you know, sort of next economy thinking. So, um, so then I sort of, you know, was reading a lot of, you know, the, the sort of new economy stuff like Paul Hawken and drawing inspiration from the, you know, early social environmental leaders. Um, and uh, I, I guess like the current, well, there's like one phase, which has been the sort of, I've been heavily involved in like the, what is it, the anti-racism, you know, Dr. Ibram Kendi's book, uh, Tim Wise, Robert D'Angelo. There's a lot of great sort of, you know, how to talk about race, what does race mean, you know, how to show up. Um, and I think this, maybe like the tail end or it, the iteration on this is um, some self-compassion work. And, um, you know, because I think, so there's this, uh, there's this book and movement called like mindful self-compassion, which has been really powerful for me because, you know, I think that, that sort of feeling all that we feel, you know, like with ecosystem collapse and income inequality and, you know, historical racism and white supremacy, it's easy to um, sort of withdraw or, you know, also to feel like you need to do so much that you burn yourself out or get stressed right. out. And so I've, I've been reading this uh, mindful self-compassion, which is sort of like making that inner voice that's often critical in all of us of like, you should be, you know, you should be working harder today or, you know, you didn't do that well. Like that's sort of, we all have this sort of like internal critic. Um, it's actually like talking and identifying that ident internal critic, which is actually often coming from a good place like that internal critic wants you to change your behavior, but sort of helping shift that internal criticism to be more of, um, instead of your own worst enemy to, to make it your own best friend. Uh, and there's like this mindful self-compassion workbook, um, by Christopher, let's see, Christopher Germer and Kristen Neff, who are two doctors, like Buddhist psychologists. And it's really powerful for me. I've just been like, wow, I just have been so mean to myself. <laughs> and, and it's a, it's a universal human condition to be, you know, to believe that we need to motivate ourselves through sort of whipping ourselves. Um, and, 
to, to sort of like do some journaling and just trying to get more in touch with like that gentle, there's like a gentle forgiving voice um, that can also be incredibly powerful because we, you know, we can't save everything in the world and solve all the problems. And so how do we um, get in touch with that sort of uh, best, you know, internal best supporter or like most loving part of ourselves that can be forgiving and really be an ally to us trying to do this work. So we're not, you know, externally fighting and you know, trying to solve everything and getting burned out and then coming home and being like really harsh on ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's, that's really a big piece of it. That's a nice segue. I mean, that self-compassion piece is uh, into the last question I have for you of, you know, yeah. for our listeners, always like to offer some practical tips and, and um, advice from your own experience. Uh, so how, what would you offer to our listeners who are trying to, who are looking to create positive change in the world um, to make change in themselves, their organization or community or the, and the wider system? Um, yeah. I love that self-compassion piece that, that speaks a lot. Yeah, that's definitely one that's been huge for me. Um, and it's honestly, it's pretty safe to say it's, it's a big challenge for everyone because sure. we're all, we all are human and it's a human condition to have that internal critic. So, um, you know, being, learning to be more self-compassionate uh, is huge. That's one. Uh, and, you know, just, the, I think it's self.compassion.org is like one of the websites that, that has it. But if you search on Google, you can find it. Um, then I would say, you know, that this sort of um, just identifying, learning more about the, you know, where we've come from. So if it's a white identified person, you know, trying to where, what are some of the ways that we may be unconsciously and, unintentionally supporting some of these systems that we are, you know, that are oppressing others and that we hate. So mm. just identifying like, you know, where are we, where are we um, unintentionally? Yeah. N you know, not leading to this, uh, to a new economy that's, that works for everyone. Um, because it does it, what I've learned is it doesn't take intentional, action to be contributing to a negative cycle. You can just be not doing anything, which is actually contributing to a negative cycle. Right. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I would just say, um, uh, it's, it's sort of like this combination of, um, uh, mindful mindfulness practice, I, you know, the meditation in the morning, um, uh, definitely dovetails with, um, trying to find, um, you know, companies that sort of excite and inspire. Like if folks are looking for um, how do you sort of get into this field of, you know, working for the new economy. Um, there's like one book I did many years ago. It's called What Color Is Your Parachute? It's just, uh, you know, sort of like the job, you know, identifying all the skills you do best and all the um you know, you, you basically create this vision of your dream job and it just gives you much more clarity into like how to break into the sector. Um, and there's, and there's other design your life type books. So I would just say like that mindfulness reflection slash design your life is really critical to taking the time to do that as opposed to just sort of tr tr trudging along without doing that reflective time. 
Yeah. That years ago, that's interesting. Uh, one of my colleagues mentioned life crafting and that's always okay. stuck with me of kind of taking the time to, yeah, really get clear of, of what you want and, and you know, how, how you can see it, visualize it, a letter to the future kind of um, distillation and yeah, how powerful that can be for sure. Excellent. Yeah. All right. Well, Ryan, thank you so much. I, I appreciate your time. Um, appreciate your input and wisdom, all the books and, and the links. I'll do my best to, to add them all in the notes for the listeners below. Um, if you are interested in the B Corp movement, you can go to bcorporation.net. What's the, the link to your book? Any links or anything that you want to promote before we wrap it yeah. up? Lyft, yeah. Lift Economy, um, liftconomy.com um, is the website and that's linked to, you can find our podcast um on next economy you know next economy now is on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts um and uh if you go to listeconomy.com you can find the podcast or book or other links there fantastic so, fantastic yeah. yeah and i highly recommend everyone to to get the book and uh excited to talk to dr Jana if there's an opportunity in the future and um yeah, yeah. just really, really grateful for your time thanks for joining us today thanks so much scott Thanks again for listening to the Bridge Breakthrough Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Taylor. If you'd like to learn more about what Bridge Partnership does around the world, you can go to www.bridge-partnership.com. Every month, we look to have new guests, thought leaders, change makers from around the world and find out how they're creating positive change in the world. Um, wishing you all the best. and We'll see you next episode.